Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Deuteronomy, reading from the seventh chapter, verses six through ten. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him And keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, as we continue to explore your holiness as best as we can. Lord, you know that we're fallen. You know that we're finite. You know that our minds tend to see things from our own perspective. But I ask, dear Lord, especially with this subject, especially when we talk about your love and the nature of that love, help us, dear Lord, to see it from your perspective. It puts so many things in focus for us. Lord, I just pray that you will take us outside of ourselves and our finite, puny minds that cannot concentrate on anything else but what we have right in front of us and expand those minds so that we can begin to capture some of the glory of the love of holiness. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, those of you who have been here or who have been listening online know that we have been discussing the holiness of God. In fact, I have just made it into a formal mini-series. It was just a collection of sermons before this, but it just keeps on sort of expanding a little bit. We've talked about the providence of God. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. We've talked about the eternal decree of God. We've talked about the covenantal nature of God. We've talked about the names of God. We've talked about God as the transcendent, set-apart, unapproachable God, but also God as the eminent God who loves to be in the midst of his people. And we've tried to make heads or tails about this great God. And the way that we have sort of been doing it in a loose fashion is to follow the history of the children of Israel, all the way from Abraham, where it began, where God made covenant with Abraham, through the years of slavery and then the exodus, finally bringing it to sort of a culmination last week as the children of Israel stand at the base of Mount Sinai as the first gathering of the Kahal, the assembly, the congregation of the people of God, and worship him. And we talked about that being the object of the exercise all along, that God is looking for worshipers. Now, you also know that it's my intent not to leave it there, that I want to take that concept all the way to its real culmination, which is the church triumphant, as we see it in Revelation 7, gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him in glory forever and ever. That's where we're headed because that is the ultimate destination of God's providence. But you also know that we've taken a couple of sort of just pauses along the way. We paused a little bit when we had communion to talk about Passover. We paused a little bit to talk about the grace of God and how the grace of God was the grace of holiness and not some watered-down grace that won't save anyone. We talked about the consecration of those who are called to worship God And this morning, we're going to talk about the love. So we're going to kind of take a little bit of a pause where we try to grapple with one of the most confusing and poorly expressed concepts or nature of God, and that is His holiness. Uh, I'm sorry, but it, it is His love, but His love in relationship to His holiness, 
the holiness of that love, the transcendence of that love. Now, let me tell you how this sort of came about. Um, as Steve mentioned when he was uh, re- reading those Psalms, uh, the children of Israel, and actually where we left you last week, was gathered around the base of Mount Sinai, worshiping God. What a beautiful picture of the church and what we are intended to do, which is to worship God. But I want to read to you the way they reacted to that encounter, the way the children of Israel responded. And these were actually the elders reading from Exodus 20, the 18th verse. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, when they had that encounter with God, remember the, the fact that God even came down upon the mountain was a sign of his eminence. But the fact that he was in his glory, his power, his transcendence meant that that mountain was holy and it could not even be touched or the people would die. Now, that's been one of our subjects as we've talked about the holiness of God. The fact that he is transcendent, set apart from his creation, totally unapproachable, unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. And then the eminence of that God who desires to be in the midst of his people and have relationship with them. And all of redemptive history is a discussion of that eminence. And eminence is going to be very important today when we talk about the love. Because when, when, when Moses said that I don't want you to fear God, but this whole thing has happened so you'll fear him. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And in fact, it even makes less sense when you realize that's the same Hebrew word. In one sense, the verb of the word, and the other, the noun of the word, but it means the same thing. So why does Moses say, don't fear him, but fear him? Well, he's using that in two different contexts. He's saying, don't be petrified and terrified of him. Because actually he is a God of love. But I want you to respect him, to honor him, to recognize his holiness. Because as we have learned, his holiness is no way diminished by his eminence. He remains transcendent even though he chooses to be in our midst and express his grace to us. And so therefore Moses is kind of keying on that. But then I started thinking, hmm, okay, they're terrified of God. Well, how does that relate to his love? How how, how do we see God as loving if the very presence of him is enough to terrify these people? And then I started thinking about, well, 1 John. And I I read a little bit of that uh, from the, the moment of the word. But here's what John says. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So does that mean that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament? Does that mean that God's love is somehow different in an Old Testament context than it is in a New Testament context? Now, granted, we have had the manifestation of that love through Jesus Christ, and our sins have been washed away so that we have a righteousness that is a, a, a proclaimed to us that it is not our own. But God's love does not change. God doesn't change. God is just as holy now, just as transcendent, and his love is no different now than it was in the those days. So how, how do we get verses 9 and 10 out of that? How, how do we put that into a perspective? How do we understand the love of God when he turns around and says, those who hate me, I am going to destroy off the face of the earth? Well, this is one of the great questions that we have. And one way is to water him down and to say, well, he didn't really mean that. Another way is to confront face on, brothers and sisters, the love of holiness, the true Love of God is the love of holiness. And it's going to take me all morning to try to articulate what that means. So let's jump into our text. We don't spend an awful lot of time in the book of Deuteronomy, although on several occasions I have 
have almost started a little series on Deuteronomy. It's a great book, and you'd be surprised how many of the quotes that we have in the New Testament or when we, that we use are out of Deuteronomy. But anyway, Deuteronomy is sort of an extended sermon. When, when we left you, and that, that passage I just read you from Exodus 20, well, Moses is about 80 years old, and the children of Israel have just left Egypt, and they're all standing outside Mount Sinai. So what we're going to do now is we're going to fast forward 40 years. Moses is about 120 years, they've, years old. They've spent 40 years in the desert, and Moses is giving a sermon so that he can prepare the children of Israel for the conquest of Canaan. He's not going to be there because he's the water, the rock at Meribah, and God said, you're not going to go into the promised land. So he's trying to prepare them, telling them what their relationship is with God, telling them who God is, explaining his law. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law. He's already done that. He's recited the Ten Commandments. And very importantly, in the chapter that just precedes this one, he has given them the Shema, what Hebrews will later call the Shema which good, I should say, orthodox Hebrews still quote at least once a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Okay, that's the Shema, and he has just given that to them, and now what he is doing is explaining to them why They are a chosen people of God. The reason, the motivation, and that's what we're after this morning. We're after motivation. What would motivate God to do what we have seen him do in the redemptive history we have seen? All the way from Abraham, all the way through now to the time of the conquest of of the the Holy Land. What is the drive behind that? Well, that is exactly what we're going to find in our text this morning. So let's jump into it. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, there's three things that he says there. We're going to take them one at a time. First of all, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Then he comes and he says that the Lord your God chose you out of all the peoples on the earth. And then thirdly, we're actually going to take it second. He has chosen you as a treasure possession. Now, I know that we covered at least two of these last week, but we did so in more of an application mode. If you remember, it wasn't really an exposition. It was the application. So we we talked about it entirely from our perspective. Well, now we're going to look at these in a different perspective. And actually, there's a different underlying principle and the way that these are used. So the first one that we come across is that the Lord your God has, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. Okay. Let's notice several things. First of all, the people, obviously, are the children of Israel, a mighty throng, over a million strong now, as after they make their way through the 40 years in the desert. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy, most of you know, is a word that simply means set apart. It doesn't mean you're super righteous. It means that God has set you apart. You have been set apart by the Lord your God. Now, I want you to notice the names that are used for God there. Two names. Yahweh, Elohim. Okay. Now, we've studied, actually, the first name carefully when we were back in the third chapter of Exodus when uh, Moses asked God, what's your name and who, how, who do I say has sent me? And God said, I am who I am. You will tell them I am has sent you. And we talked about how profound and deep and far-reaching and actually transcendent that name was because I am or Yahweh refers to the exclusivity of God. It refers to the simplicity of God, that he is one. It refers to the aseity of God. He is self-existent, pre-existence. He is eternal. He is infinite, and he is omnipresent. All of that wrapped up in that, that, that name that he supplied for himself, I am, or Yahweh. He is also the covenantal God of the children of Israel. It speaks of that as well. Well, the second name is Elohim. 
also a name for God that speaks of his transcendence. Elohim is the creator God. Elohim is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God who through the power of his will by speaking a word created all that is ex nihilo out of nothing. That's the God of Elohim. Now, he is also the God of perfect pristine, razor's edge judgment. He's the one who judges between good and evil, right and wrong, um, true and false, okay? So he's the, the, the God of judgment. Now, when you put those two together, you have a hugely powerful view of God. So it's not just uh, the fact that you have been set aside, but you have been set aside to Yahweh Elohim. In, in, In other words... The first hint of possession. And that's why this is different. That's why the way that this text is different from what we looked at last week. Because if you remember last week, I was talking about the transcendence of God. And when we talked about being a treasured possession, which is what we're going to talk about next. I said it's really great to be a treasured possession of God because that means nobody's going to steal you from him. It's good to have a transcendent God. Well, we're going to look at it from a different perspective this morning. Because, brothers and sisters, to be a treasured possession is, first of all, to be a possession. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You are mine. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. And as that precious possession of mine, you are mine and I'm setting you aside for my purpose and my purpose alone. So very strong in this opening statement is you are my people, you are my possession, but not only are you my possession, you are my treasured possession. I treasure you. And that speaks of a deep and a consuming and a holy love that God has. Now, later on, when we talk about that love, we're going to talk about two words that come from the same root that are two sides of a corn, a coin, not corn, coin. And that's the word zealous and the word jealous. They come from the same word and they mean the same thing. And we're going to see that the foundation of God's love is that zealousness and jealousness. That's the holiness of his love. We'll get there in a moment. But I just want you to see now that as a treasured possession, that means that you are guarded. That means that you are treasured and you're precious. And let me tell you something. The God of heaven, who is all-powerful and omnipotent, guards that which is treasured to him with ferocity. No one's going to take you out of his hands. And he does not abide in fidelity from those who are his treasured possession. And he goes on to strengthen this by saying, you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people out of all the peoples on the earth. And now, once again, this is a statement of, of, of God's sovereignty in election. You may not like that idea, but it is certainly scriptural. And no one asks whether or not God is sovereign in election when it comes to the children of Israel, because it is just way too prevalent all the way through scripture where God says, you know, you are my people. I am your God. I chose you. And we're going to see this morning why he chose the children of Israel and how much it had to do with them or actually how little it had to do with them. Absolutely nothing. It was God's sovereign choice. So God is the one who chooses his people. So basically what we get here is there's two types of people in the world. There are those God has chosen and then everyone else. All the peoples of the world. I chose you. Now God has chosen his people. Everyone else are not chosen. And for some reason, somehow, modern day evangelicalism has switched this. They have said, no, that makes God a monster, so therefore we're not going to talk about election or predestination or choosing. All of that is my choice. I, the fallen, finite, sinful, in my transgressions and sin, I'm the one who chooses God, not God choosing me. Well, that really undermines the idea that is here because the real idea that is here is an idea of possession. I chose you. No one chooses or opts to be a 
treasured possession of God. God and God alone decides what his treasured possessions will be. And oh, by the way, just so that you will know, this is not an Old Testament concept. It is one that is brought into the New Testament. I read to you from last last week, 1 Peter, who virtually quotes this when he writes to Christians and Jews in a New Testament context when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so in, in all of those, we have established a profound sense of ownership, God to man. God has set them aside for a purpose. Now, I said earlier, they didn't have much to do with this. Let's see exactly what they did have to do with it in the seventh verse. If it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, the discussion, the reason he talks about numbers, because numbers means the size of the number of fighting men and their ability to take back the, the, the promised land. That it, it talks about the power and the prowess in war. And that has been the subject on the table. In one sense, Moses is trying to make sure that the same mistake that was made 40 years ago is not made again. In other words, that they get weak knees when they go into the Holy Land. In fact, later on in this chapter, he says, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. God says, I am with you all the way. You don't need to realize your numbers. But even though the discussion is about numbers... The underlying principle is about value or merit or virtue. In other words, what God is saying to the children of Israel, the ones he has called to be holy, the ones who are his treasured possession, the ones he has chosen from out of all the people on the world, it has nothing to do with you. There's nothing intrinsic in you that caused me to choose you. In fact, uh, in the ninth chapter, this is what he's going to say. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. It is not because of your virtue because you have no virtue. It's not because of your merit because you have no merit. In fact, one of the major themes of the book of Deuteronomy, that if we were going to go all the way through it, we would uh, be able to see, is grace. Because they're a stiff-necked people. They are rebellious. In fact, Moses is going to say in the ninth chapter again, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. You have always been a stiff-necked people. You have always been prone to worship idols, to turn your eyes away from the Lord. And so therefore, it is not anything to do with your merit. It has entirely to do with God's choice. Now, my question again What's the motivation? Okay, we know that God has chosen the children of Israel. We know that God chooses sovereignly. But what's the motivation? What drives him? And, and, and when I use that word drive, I'm speaking in human terms. I, I don't like the idea of God being driven by something. But I think it will help us understand from a human sense. What is it that drives God to, to make covenant with Abraham, to follow these people around the desert, to bring them into this relationship with him. Well, we learned that in the eighth verse. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. that The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. King of Egypt. There's no other reason, brothers and sisters, and there's no other reason that God has done this but the fact that he loves these people. He loves his chosen people, the ones that he has set aside for holiness, the ones who are a treasured possession, the one who he has chosen out of all the peoples on the world. He has done that not because of anything intrinsically valuable or meritable or uh, virtual, virtual, virtue in them you, you know what I mean it is because he loves them and, and and actually because he loved their fathers too notice the way he puts this in 
um, the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. I think that in the fourth chapter is kind of concisely put together. So let me read that to you as well. And because he loved your fathers and chose your offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. The driving force, the purpose, the motive, the reason behind all of it. Now, don't get me wrong. The objective is worship. He wants this to be a group of worshipers that will worship him forever. But what drove him? What started it? What is, the, what is it that caused a transcendent God to be imminent? What drives his imminence is really the bottom line. And again, I'm speaking in human terms. But what is it that causes God to go to the extent that he goes to in order to be in the midst of his people, to be an imminent God. It's love, folks. But it's not the love as we understand it in the world today. It's the love of holiness. And we'll get to that in a minute. We have a lot more to say about that, but let's go on and continue. Um, I want to take the first sentence out of the ninth verse, and then we're going to look at 9 and 10 together from that point. Um, Look at that first sentence. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. Let me point out something about that phrase that I kind of skipped over. The Lord, your God. Notice he doesn't just say the Lord God, okay? Yahweh, Elohim. He says the Lord, your God. Now, for what is that? That puts something of ultimate, infinite eminence in between two statements of his transcendence, okay? He's not just Yahweh. He's not just Elohim. He's the Lord, your God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Yahweh and Elohim are the private gods of the children of Israel? Well, in one sense they are, but not in the sense that they made him up, not in the sense that they own him. In fact, it's the other way around. It's a profound statement of God's ownership of the children of Israel, of his people. You see, as reprehensible as we see slavery today, in those days it was quite prevalent. And if you walked up to a slave and said, hmm, how's your master doing today? Well, well that wouldn't be a statement of the slave owning the master. That would be a statement that the slave was owned by the master. So the Lord your God, which is prevalent throughout Deuteronomy, is another statement of God's ownership of his people. You are my people. You are set aside for my purposes because I am the Lord your God. Now there is a reminder here when he says that the Lord your God, again, repeated for emphasis of the transcendence, but also now the eminence of God and the relationship between those that he has come to be eminent with. You are my possession. I am the Lord your God. And I remind you on this day, I'm the only God. There is no other God besides me. We can read this in other parts of Deuteronomy where it says to you, it has been shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside me. And the, later in the fourth chapter, now, therefore, today, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Now, you would think, one would think that there was no need to say this to the children of Israel to remind them, hey, guess what? I am the Lord your God. By the way, I passed over an important word there. Notice the therefore. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Moses is basically saying this to the children of Israel. I need you to know something. I need you to know. And the therefore, of course, just takes us back to what's already been said. Okay, so here's what I want you to to know. Because you are a people holy to the Lord. Because... You are his private, his treasured possession. Because he chose you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And because it had absolutely nothing to do with any intrinsic virtue in you. It had 100% to do with the fact that God loves you. Because of all those things, I have something you need to know. The Lord your God is God. And there is no other. Well, 
Once again, you would think that the children of Israel, at least where they are now, would not need to be reminded of that, wouldn't you? You would think that they would know more than anything else that God is God, and I've got it because after all, I saw those ten plagues that happened in Egypt. I mean, I saw the water parted, and we passed through it on dry land, and then all of the enemies were, were killed in that. And then he provided for us in the desert for 40 years, manna um, every day, and water every time we were thirsty. We gathered together before him at Mount Horeb, and we saw his power and glory come down upon the mountain. We saw his Shekinah again and again and again enter the tent of meeting. You wouldn't think that they needed to be reminded that God is God, yet they did. Because everywhere they went, they would turn to idols. In the early days, they would be idols made of stone and metal because there would be the idols that were worshipped by the people around them. But then later, they dispensed with those tangible, tactile idols and began to worship a spirit idol. By the time of Jesus, that's what they're doing. They're worshiping a God. They call him Yahweh, but he had absolutely nothing to do with the true Yahweh. They've made him up. They've created their own God, and that's what they're worshiping. And Jesus came back as the son of God, and they killed him. So they were worshiping idols in that sense. Now, brothers and sisters, this is one of the places in scripture that we tend to sort of breeze over, don't we? I mean, we look at it, and we say, ah, that's not us. Uh, you know. And so therefore, we don't take the warning We don't take a warning like this. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In in other words, we read admonitions like that and we say... We don't worship idols. We, We don't bow down to idols made of stone or metal. Or do we? You see, it was Calvin who said we're actually idol factories. And, and that if you just flippantly say, I don't worship any idol of anything, that you need to really think about what the definition of an idol is. An idol is anything that you give your affection to. Okay, Remember, we're talking about an infinitely zealous and an infinitely jealous God at the same time. And anything or anyone that you give your affections to, that you divide your fidelity with and bring into a relationship that becomes more important than, to you than God or that you covet more than you covet a relationship with God, that's an idol. And you may not worship a figurine made of stone, but a lot of people covet houses made of stone. A lot of people covet buildings made of stone or second houses made of stone or all kinds of things made out of materials. You may not covet an idol made out of some precious metal, but you might covet a car made out of metal. You might covet a boat or even an airplane or anything. There are so many things that we covet and Paul says covetousness is indeed idolatry. Like the children of Israel, so many of us have progressed beyond that to where we don't worship things we hold in our hands or even things that are out there. We worship a Jesus that's not the Jesus of Scripture. He has nothing to do with the Jesus of Scripture. He's the Jesus of our own creation. We, we, they, they worship a Holy Spirit that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of, of, of Scripture. He's one that makes them bark like a dog and run around the room. They don't worship the Father, the God of heaven, who is holy and above all things. No, he's just another guy on the bus. But you see, if they worship that way, they're not worshiping God. So they worship a, an idol that they're calling God. And so the importance of what God says here is that I want you to recognize something. You're mine. And and, and he's not talking about necessarily sinful behavior here. But there is one thing that I will not abide out of you. I will not abide you worshiping anything or anyone else. I am your God. I am the only God. And me alone will you worship. Well, after he makes that statement, that profound statement, which is really going to play into our understanding of his love of holiness, he goes on to make a comparison. And first he talks about those who love him, 
And then he talks about those who hate him and the vast difference between the relationship and the ultimate destination between those two. And I just want you to see, brothers and sisters, that he speaks in absolutes here. There are two things that he says. Either you love me or you hate me. There's no in-between, no nominal gray areas. No, I love Jesus on Easter and Christmas or when I'm in trouble or when I need to go someplace. No, it's either you love me or you are at enmity with me. You hate me. Well, first of all, he speaks of the love that those who are in his covenantal faithfulness have for him. The faithful God, that's him, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Once again, notice the importance of covenant here. That word, steadfast love, is a great one to know. Underneath that word is the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. It is a word that means covenantal faithfulness, a faithfulness as we will see that lasts to a thousand generations. But he says, notice what he says, those who love him and keep his commandments. People love to draw a line between Old and New Testament. But you know that that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus says, that's, that's the bottom line, folks. It is, it's like, remember when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments that are out there, what's the greatest commandment? And in Mark, he literally quoted the Shema. He quoted and says, this is the important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. He added mind there. But he establishes the importance that we love the God who loved us first. And then over and over again in the upper room discourse, he defines that love, the root of that love, the focus of that love. The love is not grounded in the emotions. It's not grounded in sentimentality. It is a love that is grounded in keeping the commandments of God. If you love me, condition, it either is true or false. If you love me, then a hundred. 100% of the times the then statement will be executed. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. That's the sign. That's the, the, the outward sign of someone who truly loves God. Not because we're forced to, not because we think it's going to win us salvation, not because we're afraid of, of, of lightning bolts, but because we love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He taught us what true love was, or at least Jesus did in that sense. Well, then there's the flip side. And and, and I'm not going to do this justice this morning because my focus on love, but the very important part of love is the opposite of love. Notice what he says in the 10th chapter. And oh, by the way, when he says to a thousand generations, he's not saying this is all going to end at a thousand generations. What would that be? 25, 30,000 years. All of a sudden, I'm going to stop loving and my covenants are over. Now he's saying that's just a way of saying forever. But then in the 10th verse, he says, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. That's kind of harsh to our sensitive ears, isn't it? In a modern context, we who have been overwhelmed with the God of love and the God of grace and the God of compassion to hear, of compassion to hear him say, those who hate me, I will repay. That speaks of recompense in this, in this context. It means judgment and condemnation. I will repay them to their face. That is very intensely personal. One-on-one, there will be a, a personal payment. However... What we have learned in the Old Testament, especially here in Deuteronomy, is that when an entire nation worth of people hate God to his face, then there will be judgment upon that nation. I read you the first part of this um, earlier. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. He deals with nations as nations, but nations are a large number of people, each and every one of which, or at least most of which, who have hated God, and God repays them to their face. How does he repay them? He says by destroying them. When he says destroy, he could either be meaning a divine earthly retribution. You will be destroyed off the face of the earth. Or he could mean, probably does mean eschatological retribution. We call it hell. But 
hear, hear what he says. Now, uh, this is going to kind of set me up for my discussion of love. Because what do we do with that, folks? Where do we put that? I mean, do, how do we see that as a God of love who says something like that and means it? I mean, this is, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. I mean, we can't wish that away. We can't water him down. We can't change the God from who he is. He says, I will repay to their face those who hate me and utterly and completely destroy them. Now, how do we see that scary God as a loving God? one of the great questions that people struggle with. Either you water him down and make him more like you or you try to understand the love of holiness. He says this um, in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. This kind of language is all through the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. I will remind you, brothers and sisters, that he's talking to covenant people here. He's not talking to the pagans, although it would apply to them. He's talking to, the, to those. Now, again, we're not talking about losing salvation. We know that's not going to happen in a New Testament context because we didn't gain it in the first place. It was provided by Jesus. But what it does mean is that those who are operating under the sign of the covenant, in other words, circumcised men who hate God, like Ahab, okay? Or baptized Christians who are heretics and false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. Just because you have the outer signs of the covenant doesn't mean that if you hate God in your heart that you will not be destroyed along with everyone else who hates God. But notice that word jealous. It's the same word that is used in the second of the Ten Commandments. Remember the first, you shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall not make to yourselves any graven images of anything above the earth or below the earth or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Interesting word in Hebrew. It's the word kana, Q-A-N-N-A. And and it is a word that can mean at the same time a deep, abiding zealousness. Zeal for your house consumed me. A deep love. And at the same time, it means a jealousness, a jealous love. Now, here's the problem we have, folks. It's the same basic problem we have had all through this study of the holiness of God. It is the problem of Christendom today. It has been the same problem throughout the history of the church. And that is that we think God is a human. We bring him down to our level. We look at the anthropomorphisms and we actually look at Jesus sometimes. And we think that God, because he has become gracious and imminent in our midst, has ceased to be holy. But we realize that his holiness never changes. His transcendence never changes. He remains transcendent. So somehow we have to explain how a transcendent God becomes eminent. What is the motivation behind that? And how can a God who John tells us is love, how can that God be so wrathful at sinfulness as to send people to hell? Well, I'm going to say something that you're going to think is really crazy, but I'm going to try to back it up. It all emanates from his love, folks. It all emanates from the love of holiness. Because you see, those two words are two sides of a coin. Intense zealousness brings with it intense jealousness. Now, I'm going to try very hard. I may fail, so don't get mad at me if I do. But I'm going to try very hard not to use the word jealousy. Because jealousy brings up the connotations in our mind of the green-eyed monster, an egregious sin among Christians, a bitterness of soul. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about ownership. We're talking about a treasured possession. And we are talking about an all-powerful, consuming love that will not share that possession with any other God. At the same time, he is infinitely zealous And he is infinitely jealous of that love. Let me see if I can put it into a human perspective. It's always kind of dangerous when you do that, but I think this will make sense. I want to take a look at two couples, couple number one and couple number two. 
Couple number one are a biblically defined married couple. They are monogamous, one partner for life. And they intensely love each other. For the man, there is no other woman on the face of the planet except his wife. For the woman, there is no other man on the face of the planet except her husband. They are bound in this extraordinary, close, loving relationship, as it, as it actually was in the Garden of Eden, the way they are all supposed to be before we fell. Now, I'm going to call that a closed relationship because there's no chance anyone else gets into that. Couple number two is a couple that we see more of in our time. I'm going to call it an open relationship. Two people who are enamored with each other at the particular point in time, and so therefore they call it love and they live together. They're not married. There's no commitment. They both realize they've had other partners and probably will after the time together have other partners. But as long as it, it, it is okay, as long as they love each other, as long as they get along each other, as long as they attract each other and no one else comes along, hey, we'll cohabitate. But as soon as someone comes along that attracts me more than you, I'm gone. Don't get upset because we're just ships passing in the night. I mean, that was understood in the beginning. There's no commitment here. Now, in couple number one, there's an intense zealousness because there's an intense love. And along with that goes an intense jealousness. Now, couple number two, there's no zealousness, so there's very little jealousness. In fact, jealousness is considered to be a bad thing. Hey, don't get upset. We understood each other. We're just passing through. But imagine if you took the liaison that couple number two would consider to be perfectly normal and you projected it on couple number one. That's unthinkable. That couldn't possibly be. There's no way that that relationship can continue if there is that kind of a liaison or that kind of thought because there is a fidelity. There is a faithfulness. There is a zealousness and a jealousness that holds that together. If that bond were broken... That's the only real reason, there's more than one, but the only real reason that is, ex- that is exposited in Scripture of why God allows divorce. If that kind of a relationship was broken. Now, I know this is impossible. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning that is impossible. But I want you to do it as best as you can. Because we're going to reach the borders of our finiteness. I want you to take couple number one. And their jealousness and zealousness for each other. And I want you to multiply it by infinity. I want you to multiply or amplify that by infinity. By the perfectly and completely infinite, eternal God of the universe who is transcendent in his majestic holiness. And I want you to understand the depth and the degree, the consuming fire that is the love of God. It is a love born out of holiness. It is a love commensurate with His holiness. Just like His grace is commensurate with His holiness, so is His love. That's where it is formed. A love of holiness, not some watered down love that we understand that we call love in our culture. But it is the perfect love that is absolutely, infinitely zealous and jealous at the same time. And And that love cannot, will not abide any unfaithfulness with those who he has called to be holy. To set apart as his treasured possessions. I am the Lord your God. and There is no other. That's the relationship of the love of holiness. So let me see if I can explain this to you. By giving it to you. As some principles. God's love. Is the love of holiness. It's not a love that. Is like the love of the culture. And that's the big problem that we have. It is a love that is born out of his holiness. In fact let me put it this way. Okay I've already established one thing. Principle number one is this. The greater the love. The greater the jealousness. The greater the zeal. The greater the jealousness for that love relationship. God is infinite in his zeal, so he is therefore infinite in his jealousness. Now, what is the motivation for that perfect love that cannot possibly allow you 
to have any kind of another liaison with any other God, any other idol, any other affection. We're all dead. Okay, we're all sunk because each and one, every one of us has already done that. How does that God become imminent? What drives him? What is it that makes the perfectly transcendent God totally unapproachable, totally apart from us? What is it that makes him imminent in our midst? It's love, folks. It's the love of holiness. It's the love of holiness that drives the eminence of God. And again, I don't like using that's a human term, but that's, I think we can understand. It is an eminence that is defined by the love that is defined by holiness. And so that God can be in the midst with the profane people that he made in his image and he loves with a fiery, consuming, uh, uh, jealous and, and zealous love. That drives the imminence that would bring him down into the midst of those people so that he can have relationship with them. The greatest manifestation of that, the greatest manifestation of that principle is Jesus Christ. The greatest expression of the love of holiness was the way that that love of holiness could love in an eminent way through the love of Jesus. Now, I'm very thankful for Jesus. I am very thankful just for, not, not just his salvation, I'm thankful for that, but I'm thankful because he was human, you, you see? And, and, and that makes a huge difference to us. And, and you need to realize this, that Jesus was a human. Now, we, in just a moment, are going to be frustrated because we are going to reach the edge of the boundaries of our finiteness in trying to comprehend the love of holiness. We're going to get stopped to where all we can do is look into the distance. But Jesus came from heaven to earth for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his son and he sent him as a human. So Jesus as a human related to us in a human way what the holiness and the love of God was. He explained to us the love of the Father. He explained to us the love of adoption. He explained to us the love of forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion and all of the other things that are resulted of the love of eminence. But brothers and sisters, that in no way diminishes the love of holiness because it's the love of holiness that drives the eminence, drives God to send his son so that we can have relationship with I am so thankful for Jesus giving me a clue of what the love of holiness is. But it only goes so far, I have to admit. Now, maybe your minds are broader than mine, but I, it breaks down for me. It breaks down for me when I hear or read words like the word became flesh. And tabernacled amongst us. When I read what Paul said, that the second member of the Godhead, the transcendent God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but actually took on the attributes of a human being, placed himself under his own law, and went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I cannot comprehend that. I can understand a man doing it, but I can't grasp God doing it, or the kind of love that would be represented by that kind of a condescension. I can understand a man teaching his disciples humility. I can understand him getting up from the table and girding himself with a towel and washing his disciples' feet. I cannot comprehend in my wildest imagination the transcendent God doing that. It's beyond my belief. I can't comprehend that level of love. And I can't comprehend anything that happened after that. I can't understand Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father and such agony was fulfilling him that the capillaries in his skin, his skin begin to burst and he sweats blood. Knowing all the time what he faced and through his own volition doing it anyway. What was the driving factor? What drove him to the cross? It was love. Not the watered-down, 
cut-rate love that we as humans comprehend, but the love of holiness that knew there was no other way for the God that is holy to be imminent and in the midst of his people other than the sacrifice of perfection, which was Jesus. I can't understand what happened the next day. I can't understand... I can understand a man. I can understand a martyr doing this. And I can understand a great man of God putting himself in that situation, allowing himself to be beaten and mocked and his, bird, his beard pulled out and spit upon and, and falsely accused and the injustice of sending him to the cross and Barabbas goes free. And then all of the mocking that occurred through the Romans and being flogged within an inch of his life and carrying his cross through town, being nailed to that cross and crucified. I can understand that because a lot of men got crucified that way, but I can't understand God putting himself in that situation. It's more than my mind can comprehend. I reach the edge of my finiteness and I don't understand the love of holiness that would drive that degree of eminence. But it's what happens next that... I I, I lose all ability to comprehend those three hours of holy darkness. God turned his face on his own son and poured his wrath out upon his own son. Not not these people here in verse 10. Not, Not for my sins, but upon his own son. For the sins that I deserve to be punished for and destroyed for. He didn't do it. But he came to earth and he accepted that on his own shoulders. And that same separation and wrath of God until he finally says, It is finished. It is paid for. Brothers and sisters, I can't understand that. Is above me. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. I am lost. So when that occurs, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to bring Jesus down. Either you're going to overemphasize his humanity and de-emphasize his divinity. You're going to de-supernaturalize him so that you can over-humanize him. You're going to bring him down as if he were another person and you're going to say, oh my goodness, what a wonderful love that that man gave for me to sacrifice himself for me. And we focus on the eminence of Jesus Christ and we completely forget about his transcendence. We completely forget about the love of holiness that brought him here in the first place. So either we water him down or we confront Full bore the love of holiness. And I want you to do something with me. It's hard to do. It's impossible to do. But I want you to push that as far as you can. We're finite and we're human, folks. We cannot comprehend the love of holiness. We can't. But I want you to try. I want you to take your mind out of human love and I want you to start to try to focus on the love of holiness because it will make a lot of things clear to you. You'll understand his wrath. You'll understand the conquest of Canaan. You'll understand the flood. You'll understand why God does what he does a lot better if you can simply push and open your mind to where you go as far as you can go understanding the love of holiness. But when you reach the edge of that cliff and you can go no further because you have reached the edge of your finite mind and all you can do is look out into the distance in awe and see the love of holiness. Brothers and sisters, you're on holy ground. Consecrate your hearts. Take off the sandals from your feet. Drop on your face and praise the God of heaven that he chose you out of darkness and no merit upon your own and placed you in his marvelous light and sent his son to die for you so that you might have relationship with him. It is only there that you get even a glimpse of the true love of God. The love of God that caused all of this to happen. That is the motivation behind all of redemptive history. It is a deep, abiding, consuming, divine, transcendent, holy love that God has for you. 
Stop worrying about whether he elects you or whether he doesn't elect you, whether there's predestination or not, whether you choose him or he chooses you. If you put this in the right perspective, how on earth are you going to choose him? But just follow your face, brothers and sisters, and worship the God of heaven who says, I, the Lord your God, am God. So brothers and sisters, remember this, or actually know this. God is infinitely zealous. He is infinitely jealous. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. But he won't abide you worshiping other gods. He won't abide your idolatry. He won't abide a cut-rate, second-class, watered-down, nominal Christianity. What he wants is all of you because... That's what he loves because his love is the love of holiness. Think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us because we have no conception. I mean, we're, you made us finite. You know we're finite. You know we can't see beyond a certain point. But help us to at least get there. Help every single person who hears this message to drive themselves to the very borders of their own finiteness and look out into the glory of your love, the love of holiness, the love that motivated, that drove the eminence and the love and the compassion and all that we see in your redemptive plan. It is all because you are love. That's why John says you are love. You're equated with love. Love is you. You're love. So dear Lord, thank you for that and help us comprehend and to reflect as best we can in our profane fallenness, the love of holiness. In your name we pray, amen.